Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. I think we should just go ahead and get started. If anyone has any objections, please raise them. Okay, good. Hi, I'm Judy Faze. I'm with Inside Climate News, and I'm really so excited to be here today to talk about really the true stories of the West and, and the landscape that aren't really being told because we don't really see the world as it is. We see it as, as our structures, our political structures um, and social structures have sort of trained us. So we have a great panel here. Um, and uh, my hope is that we can leave a, a fair amount of time for question and an questions and answers. So please uh, get ready with those. Uh, we usually take questions from members um, and then other members of the working press um, and then other people who are here who, who don't fall into those categories. Um, let's start. Uh, with by introducing um, Michael Estrada. He's a photographer, outdoor educator, artist, and founder of Brown Envi Environmentalist. And Michael, I'd love for you to just say what prompted you to, to start the, the kind of organization, the kind of work that, that you're doing. I'll get, give this over and plug in. Could I use the stand, actually? Can I use the stand? Yeah, thank you. Cool, hello. Um, before I introduce myself, I want to start off with a quote that I think will inform a lot of my work. Um, it is not my own. It is from um, an indigenous uh, Miri artist by the name of Leela Watson. Um, it goes, if you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. Um, so with that being said, um, my pronouns are he and his. Um, as Judy mentioned, uh, I'm a photographer, visual storyteller. Um, a lot of my work centers around black, indigenous, and people of color, especially in the environment and in media. Um, so this ranges from photography, uh, poetry, um, doing framework building around, um, essentially that helps us tell our own stories and being like, okay, like how does this look in traditional mainstream history and what does our history actually look like? Um, so yeah, my work is inspired basically by essentially looking at how mainstream media and journalism or the environmental movement has erased the stories of folks of color. And I'm going to use folks of color as a short term for black, indigenous, and people of color, but just as a um, space saver. Um, but yeah, so that's my inspiration mostly, is looking at how media, how the environmental movement has erased our experiences, our histories and looking into like reclaiming that space and telling our stories from a perspective that's by us and for us. Um, and yeah, and welcome any questions as we go along. Um, our, our next speaker is uh, Jody Rave Spotted Bear, um, who uh, has a website, Buffalo's Fire, and uh, started the native, uh, I'm sorry, the indigenous media uh, Freedom Alliance, is that correct? Okay. And uh, Jody is a person of, of great uh, breadth and experience in, in telling the stories that haven't been told in a, in a very 
big way. She's a, a Neiman Fellow, a one-time Neiman Fellow, and uh, is currently a, a Maynard Fellow, is that how I say it, um, at, in uh, California. And Jody, tell us a little bit about your experience and, and what, what drove you to start your own website and also to, to begin the, the Freedom Alliance. <clears throat> Dashana Dashkasha. My name is Jody Spotterberg. Greetings to the men in our language. We're one of the few languages that we specifically address the women in one way and the and the men in another another way. Um, I'm Mandan and Hidatsa, also Lakota on my father's side, and I had spent uh, about 15 years reporting for the mainstream press. Uh, Idaho Statesman, Salt Lake Tribune, and then Lee Enterprises, where I, I specifically asked to uh, when they interviewed me, wanting to asking me to be a business reporter. I told them, you know, the reason I got into journalism was to report on American Indian issues, and they're like, okay, fine, let's let's talk about that. What do you want to do? Long story short, they ended up scrapping the um, business reporting position, and then they, they hired me t uh, to let me report on what I was very passionate about, and that is American Indian issues. Now, I had um, worked for my tribal newspaper when I was in high school. I joined the National Guard um, as a reporter and eventually went to a journalism school over in, in Boulder. And once I'd got those degrees, you know, I was told, why don't you come back and write, write for our tribal newspaper? I would have liked to have done that. However, I'm from the community and I know that I could I could never really be a true journalist and, and cover American Indian issues or report on the tribal government because uh, most tribal newspapers are looked at as public relations arm. There are exceptions to that. Navajo Nation, I love picking up that uh, newspaper. It's it's sizable. It's meaty. They have a lot of great reporters. Alistair sitting up here in the uh, top row used to um, be a reporter uh, with the Navajo Times. Uh, but the, the reality is of 570 tribes around the country, there is only a handful that have independent press ordinances. And so that means there are no open records. There are no open meetings. You know, our election boards are often um, work in favor of incumbents. For example, on my reservation, I live on the Fort Berthold Reservation in, in North Dakota, where we have massive oil development and we... We have staggered elections, but last fall we elected a new chairman and probably about four other council people, and they all got in with about 80% of the vote, which <laughs> I, I wish there were some election people in there, and I'd like to do a study of why that seems so flawed. Um, and I might get a little off topic on <laughs> on why that's happening, but we have a lot of hundreds of millions of dollars coming into our community because of this uh, massive, massive oil development. Why did I start the Indigenous Media Freedom Alliance after I moved, after I reported for the mainstream press? 
home is home, and I love the land, and that's where my family uh, are. They're all located on Fort Berthold. So I, I went back home, and um, I did run our tribal media, the newspaper and the radio, for almost two years. Um, and I was very insistent on going to our current chairman and asking, um, give us some more information so we can report to our people about what you're doing, how our leaders are, are serving us. And I, I hit a, a brick wall many, many times on that. And so I ended up, I got fired. <laughs> and... Um, and immediately, I I did what I I probably should have did when I first got back, and that's found the Indigenous Media Freedom Alliance, and our our goal is to advocate for independent media. Um, I just uh, I and a, a coworker were just down at uh, Standing Rock, and there is a group of people there, um, some elders that they've had this organi their own organization going for uh, since 2010. And they're all about transparency and accountability. And this is a conversation that happens all over Indian country. Imagine there's only a handful of tribes that have independent press ordinances. So knowing what your government is, is doing is, is always always an issue for um, tribal citizens. So I started the Independent Media Freedom Alliance, or the Indigenous Media Freedom Alliance to advocate for independent media and um, help tribes right now work on those independent press ordinances. And we have a publishing arm too called buffalosfire.com. Great, thank you. Um, Next, we'll hear from um, Bobby McGill. He's the president of SEJ. You may already know that. Um, he's been a, a great leader. Um, he also uh, comes to uh, covering energy uh, after spending uh, years here in the West uh, covering public lands and uh, general government issues. Um, he and his husband now split their time between uh, Virginia and New York. And... Uh, Bobby, I, I thought maybe you could talk a little bit more about your background and who you are, how you got here, and and to what extent your personal experiences, your your personal worldview that brought you to Washington uh, now influences your work. It's a very interesting, well, <clears throat> very interesting question. Um, yeah, <clears throat> I think there's this we, we sort of divide, particularly when we talk about public lands and covering public lands. We and I think. Um, just in the course of this conference, it's it's very easy for us to sort of split up the country between east and west. And I think that, you know, um, even those of us uh, back east, where we're where a lot of folks are not necessarily aware of public lands, there's lots and lots of public lands in the west, in, in the east as well. And um, I, I just want to say, as you know, today is National Coming Out Day, and I think that's significant in this context. Um, the uh, we think of public lands in terms of of uh, the rugged West. We think of them in terms of stereotypes a lot of times. And uh, but, you know, I think public lands of the East sort of sort of symbolize how public lands are a lot more than that. And I think that there are a lot of voices, particularly members of the gay, of the LGBTQ community, who uh, also um, deserve um, some uh, some voice in in uh, public lands management. 
Um, today is significant because there's a um, there's a plot of public lands, federal public lands in Lower Manhattan, um, that is a place where many of us uh, uh, go on. I I think it's proper to say that we might take a pilgrimage there once or twice in our lives um, and uh, to celebrate uh, the victories of the LGBT rights movement. Um, that's Stonewall National Monument that was created under the uh, by President Obama a few years ago um, under the same Antiquities Act that created that, that protected um, public lands throughout the West. Um, we think of public lands in terms of of uh, you know um, national parks and uh, monuments and uh, bear's ears and whatnot, but public lands are also um, very, uh, uh, certain public lands are very, very special to the LGBT community. Um, in addition to Stonewall, you've got uh, Jacob Reese Beach in New York City as well, um, uh, Fire Island National Seashore on Long Island, um, Cape Cod National Seashore in uh, Massachusetts, um, and various others as well. And um, I, uh, I've been, sorry, I've been covering public lands um, in both the West and the East now for on and off for the last 18 years. Um, started in a small um, community in, in southern New Mexico called Socorro and uh, lived in Taos, New Mexico for a while, uh, working for the Taos News, um, covered natural resources for the Grand Junction Daily Sentinel in western Colorado, and then here in Fort Collins uh, for the Fort Collins Colorado. And, and um, um, I came to appreciate uh, the complexities of, of federal lands and what they mean for locals um, and for uh, the nation as a whole while doing this. But I came to this sort of through Boy Scouts, actually. I was a ranger at Philmont Scout Ranch in northern New Mexico for a number of years. And, um, you know, they they use federal lands adjacent to the to their 142,000 acre ranch. Um, and uh, and so that sort of sparked an interest in federal lands management. Incidentally, I mean, we talk about stereotypes. There's probably no place in the United States where, you know, uh, uh, this this rugged, you know, hyper masculine stereotype sort of plays out in real life than at Philmont Scout Ranch in New Mexico, which is, I have to say, a truly extraordinary place. But um, so. Thank you. Um, and next we'll hear from um, Brian Calvert of High Country News. Um, Brian's been involved. He's now uh, organized an indigenous uh, uh, peoples or indigenous issues desk. I, maybe you can correct me on the term. Um, but I think in a big way, there are a lot of people who are here who are very interested in how can we be allies and help the world see the world the way it really is as to as opposed to what's in our mind's eye of the way the world has worked um, and you you've made a lot of strides uh, uh, towards that could could you talk a little bit about who you are how you got sure. there and why this is an issue for you and how how you're sure. working with it okay yeah uh, yeah I'm Brian Calvert I'm the editor-in-chief of High Country News or um, <clears throat> a magazine that covers uh, all the complexities of uh, the American West um, uh, which is a fiction so it's really hard to cover. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, 
And uh, so my sort of the way that I got there was uh, I, I grew up in Pineville, Wyoming, very small, uh, very small town. Um, <clears throat> I grew up in a, a trailer that had an addition on it. So it's not as cool as a double wide. And then um, <laughs> and then I um, <clears throat> I joined the military to sort of um, I, I was no one in my family had gone to college. So I didn't know that you could just borrow money to go to college, actually. So I thought you needed money or something. So I joined the army. Uh, not a great fit. And then I went um ended up um, getting into journalism and going to work abroad. And my first job in journalism uh, abroad was working for a newspaper that um, called the Cambodia Daily. And that newspaper was set up to help um, Cambodian journalists establish a fourth estate sort of uh, approach toward a, a new, a newly emerged democracy from decades of strife and war. And so we worked side by side with Cambodian reporters to just uh, double byline stories and um, kind of, uh, you know, it's learn learned what you could f about Cambodia from um, from your counterpart, and they would learn sort of the way that American journalism was set up. And we put out a newspaper in both languages every day, so it was a daily newspaper environment. So those kind of fourteen hour days, um, <clears throat> and. Um, and then I just kind of sort of stayed abroad. I ended up working in China for a while, and then I ended up in, in media development. And eventually, I was um, living in Afghanistan, working for the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, uh, flying into different corners of Afghanistan to help um, Afghan journalists uh, sort of tell uh, investigative reporting th uh, through uh, radio journalism, uh, and sort of do my own freelancing. So. Um, it's a really quick quick way to try to say that I kind of started from this very small place that is very, very West uh, in certain ways and kind of had my mind blown over like half of my career. And then I came back with all of these sort of uh, tool sets, and I, but I didn't really want to leave the West and I didn't want to leave journalism. Uh, and I was lucky enough to get a, a fellowship at um, CU Boulder, which is the Ted Scripps Fellowship. Uh, and I was able to take... Um, environmental law and philosophy, and I'm um, a bit of a poet, so I took some poetry, and um, then got a job at High Country News, and sort of, I think I kind of, I don't know, I don't think they knew what they were getting into when they hired me. <laughs> I think they saw something very familiar, oh, this is a child of the West, or something like that, so they hired me, and I brought in all these uh, big new ideas about saying, like, well, look, this really isn't covering the West, if you say you're a magazine that covers the West, you're actually not actually doing that, you can say you're a magazine that's covering the um, public lands of the Intermountain West, and that's probably accurate, but not a great um, position, not a great market position, so if we're going to cover the West, then let's cover the West, and let's, and so I've been for the last five years inside that magazine, pushing uh, to sort of reorient the entire publication, not only its uh, readers, but also its uh, staff and its board toward understanding that the West is this really, really complicated, complex place. There's like 10 of us. So how can we cover that? And it's really about how, where do you, and the, the lesson is for any newsroom, I think, where can you do essential work and what are your priorities because you can't do it all. And if you want to make uh, fair and accurate storytelling your priority, which I think journalists should, then you also have to make a priority being very representative and inclusive of the communities that you cover. And so that's what we've been doing at High Country News, and I'll sort of take questions from that, I guess. One of the things that I think is really interesting about High Country News is that uh, you said this the other day, that, that you're focused on uh, delivering news not ab about other communities um, for them, but allowing uh, the voices of the people who are, are 
doing the news to also reflect the news. So um, you, that's, you have an, indig an indigenous, uh, go ahead and tell me what yeah. the correct name is. Well, <clears throat> it, it has, what's indigenous affairs is what we, it's Indi an indigenous, indigenous affairs, affairs desk. Okay. Um, and um, we've recently just started calling it that because we were originally calling it tribal affairs, but that's not actually accurate. It kind of, and it's a little bit, not great territory. It's more accurate to say the indigenous affairs that we cover. And we covered the, that desk um, was built um, to cover um, Indian country west of the Mississippi. So that's almost all of the United States Indian country. We don't necessarily do uh, First Nations, but um, we built it. We sort of we built a desk that would center Native voices for a Native audience. Uh, we hired a Native editor for that and um, try to promote as much as possible uh, Indigenous journalists. So um, the idea is that it's your foreign from, not about, and that's, that's um, I think, an important orientation that's like really quick to say and really hard to do. Great. Um, I guess, as I sort of mentioned earlier, I think that uh, for a lot of reporters who aren't part of this community, um, our big question is, is how do we find people, what, what are we doing wrong that we're not including all of the different voices of our stories in our stories? And I'll start, Michael, do, would you like to take that question? Um, yeah, so, at least from my point of view, um, one reason why I think a lot of, I will say like white journalists and white storytellers aren't telling these stories. Um, to one degree, I'll admit that sometimes I don't think it's appropriate for white journalists and white storytellers to tell our stories, um, depending on what the angle is coming from. So before I answer that question, I would just ask, tell you to ask yourself, why do you want to tell our stories? Or kind of what's the perspective there? Because I think a lot of history in journalism and in media, it's always been that, and funny enough, funny enough like how um, the land is approached and the land is seen is from this idea that everything belongs and everything can be cataloged, everything should be cataloged, and everything should be seen. So I would ask you why um, and what's the approach and like what's your intent there. Um, in terms of being more inclusive, um, I would think just you know take some time to do uh, the homework of going on, going online, um, and going through Google or going through through social media, because there's a lot of folks out there who are already creating this content, whether it's folks from the LGBTQIA community or the intersections of like black lesbian women. You know, it's like there's already a lot of folks who are already doing this storytelling, and it's out there. Like if you don't, if you haven't read it, if you haven't seen it, then I would just implore you to really think about what news you're consuming or even just what storytellers you're consuming because there is a lot of journalism there's a lot of writing that is happening around these issues already and then my advice I guess would be is like where do you fit into that and where can you use your platforms or your voice like High Country News is saying it's that they're making the effort of hiring folks who represent that community so they actually did hire me for a piece um, on a friend of mine who is a black climber and they just asked me to take the photos of her, and I already knew her, and it was a lot more welcoming because she works a lot with black and brown children, specifically women, uh, young women of color. So for me, being there, like, they didn't even notice me. Um, it was very, like, to me, they saw me more as, like, an older brother, if anything. Um, but it was that relationship of, yes, like, um, maybe there could have been specifically 
a black woman who could have done the pictures and maybe that would have been like an even better way to do it but even still like there is that um you should be taking into account why do you want to tell these stories because it is becoming a hot topic in a lot of ways um, so don't do it because it's becoming a hot topic and because you want to all of a sudden start covering it. I would say do the homework first, seeing what's already out there. Who are the writers already doing it? Can you partner with one of them? Or if you have funding yourself, if you're a director or something, you can also hire people. Like Brian is saying, you can hire folks, um, folks of color, journalists of color, because they're out there. But the problem is that traditionally speaking, our voices have not mattered and our voices have not been respected. So you have to hear it, traditionally speaking, from a white man in order for it to be respected. And now that's starting to change, right? But traditionally speaking, if it's not coming from a white man, like it has not been respected. Um, and because most of our media has come from this imagination of just essentially a very select few people of society, predominantly white men, um, our imaginations are being influenced by only a few people in our society. Um, and that's kind of like what my work is about, essentially, is really dismantling this idea that there is a default person or that there is a default way of thinking or approaching something and really reclaiming how we see each other and how we see our own narratives and histories. Um, and one, one, um, one quick example that I'll use is, how many folks here have used the word tree hugger before, just as a show of hands? Sure. So. Have used it, have heard of it? Yeah. Cool. All right. I was like, I, yeah, I used to be an educator, so usually I'm like more interactive of like, raise my hands. Um, that's just more of my, my style of teaching or talking. Um, okay, great. Um, but does anybody know where that term came from? Or safe space, if you think where it came from, if you know, or maybe what comes to mind when you think of a tree hugger? This is also a great answer, by the way. No, yeah. Do you remember what the era or the time? 80s, cool. Early 90s, oh, um, I'm really bad at repeating people's things. Does somebody else want to? My mind doesn't work that way. Um, Anti-logging. Anti-logging era, Redwood era, protection. Derogatory. Great, yeah. And then I heard someone else in the back. No. The Julia, Butterfly Hill. Julia Butterfly Hill. Cool. Those are actually three great uh, responses of what I usually hear. It's like around the 80s, around protecting redwoods or protecting trees. Julia Butterfly Hill is another one. And then also that it's seen as a derogatory term. Um, very quickly, I'll go over it. And I think I had the photo up. Um, I'm not sure if it's working or not. OK, that's fine. Um, but if anyone's curious, I'm happy to uh, show them some stuff. But um, essentially, what's not known, even though these are the three, I would say, pretty common responses to tree hugger, or just not knowing at all, is the fact that um, tree hugger, the term itself, was inspired by indigenous Indian women. So not a lot of folks use it as in, not Indian in the sense of like indigenous folks here in the United States, but I mean like from India, just to clarify, because people have been using that term interchangeably. Um, but um, indigenous Indian women who essentially, um, I will say in the 17th century, um, there was a group of indigenous Indian women who protected the trees in the village by literally hugging them and wrapping themselves around the trees. And instead, the person who ordered the trees to be cut down killed them. And it was like this huge massacre. 
forward, uh, fast forward 200 years later, around the 70s, something also similarly happened, and they were inspired. This, a different group of Indian women were inspired by these same Indian women. And because it's the 70s and a lot of media is traveling a lot faster nowadays, by the time we get to like the 80s and people tree-hugging, they actually were inspired by folks in India who are actively doing it and doing it for like generations at that point, right? Um, but some of this this history is like very indicative that it's a, it's been a race essentially, right? Like you are all in the environmental space and you have all heard the word tree hugger, but that history isn't there. Um, that history isn't there for you and it's because it's been a race and intentionally in a race in, in a lot of ways. So um, yeah, that would be my answer. Yeah, we just we just had a, a panel earlier, and this kind of similar issue came up, where the general consensus among our our panelists was reach out to if if there's a story in your community, reach out to some of your uh, indigenous. I guess in my case, I'll speak from the indigenous perspective. Uh, I'm glad that High Country News had hired Tristan Atone, who is Kiowa, uh, to run that tribal affairs desk. And I think the challenge there at High Country News and, and for a lot of media publications is I, it, it's a diversity issue in trying to reach out to the people of color who really do understand those stories and are your are your best allies for for telling them um, you know we came up again about you know the parachute journalist you know that happens time and time again and uh, living on a reservation I I see that having reported in the mainstream and seeing other people's coverage of uh, American Indian issues this is a a perennial problem. Now, we do have our own uh, issues in Native America because if you look at 37 tribal colleges that are largely in the West, there's only one college that, a tribal college that has a journalism program, and that's Haskell University in, in Kansas. So we are not teaching journalism in our tribal communities. And this is really creating a, um, we're not putting people into the pipeline. And as much as I'm an advocate of diversity, and I really loathe when top editors or the people in charge of filling positions in newsrooms say, oh, we can't find anybody, and, and we'll say, oh, yeah, we're out there. You know, there's, there's people who can do the job. There, there are. You, you just need to know that particular community. At the same time, so we're not training people in our tribal communities with only one college. And I think this is um, kind of goes to a, a really more deep-seated issue in, in reporting about Native American issues in that, you know, one of the first Native newspapers in the country was the Cherokee Phoenix. And they 
were, you know, they're considered part of the five civilized tribes. So there was a lot of um, assimilation and acculturation that was happening, you know, during um, the early days when the Cherokee Phoenix was was started. And at that time, they had already, you know, they had a developed uh, uh, a written language. Um, Quanah uh, Parker, I think, developed that, and so when they started their paper, there was a there was some of these relocation efforts going on where the, they wanted to move the Cherokee, um, I think, out of out of Georgia at that time. I, I'm trying to remember where the Cherokee Phoenix was was founded, but some of the early issues that they reported on was standing up. And, and saying why they don't want to be relocated and, and really advocating for themselves. And that's kind of been the role a lot of tribal newspapers historically have played over the centuries and, and decades in that, um, you know, their job is more like public relations and you know, there's so many exterior forces working against tribes often that there's, you know, like a palisade put up around the, the tribe and they're, they're very, um, um, not very giving of information. And I, I keep saying this, 570 tribes and we only have a handful that have independent press ordinances, that free flow of information isn't happening in, in Indian country. So we're not training our journalists. There was one organization called the American Indian Journalism Institute uh, that was ran out of the University of South Dakota. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they, uh, they did a really excellent job of reaching out to college students and helping them with internships, getting them into the mainstream press, but the Freedom Forum um, Foundation funding kind of dried up. And so... There's a, a, a not many journalism training programs, you know, at the college, tribal college level, or are in between. So finding reporters to fill those positions are challenging. But there are people out there that can tell the help tell the stories and and um, Estrada. Mm. Michael? Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Michael had mentioned, you know, reaching out to those reporters, and I think find one and develop your, your network from there, but um, make those efforts to get those people, those voices, a part of the institutions that you're associated with or writing for. Thank you. Bobby, did you want to? I had something, but no, go ahead. Um, so I think you're, essentially your question is, what are we doing wrong? Yes. And the first part of that question is that you're assuming there's a we, and then there's a they. So that's kind of problematic. Um, and the um, sort of the second thing is, I think when it comes to um, being more representative and inclusive in newsrooms or in organizations, is that it's not an end unto itself. It's that's kind of a box checking kind of thing, but rather you want to. You want better stories for your <laughs> magazine or newspaper. You want better for your outlet. And you're not going to get very good stories if you're only coming from a certain um, uh, frame of mind. Um, so uh, it's really like an inclusion of different sort of perspectives and ways that people um, view the world. Um, and so there's not really like a, a, a we 
that you're assuming there. Um, uh, there's just a bunch of uh, us, <laughs> um, uh, or we're all they's, I'm not sure. Um, but um, the idea that you just, to, to do better journalism and to do ethical journalism, you actually have to be accurate. And if you're sending people into different communities that don't know anything about it, you're, the chances of you being accurate are very slim. And so um, if you're sort of devoted to the sort of fundamentals of journalism, then that there's a reason to do that. So that's kind of an ethical reason, um, um, the ethics of journalism. Uh, and there's also uh, a, it's like a major upside in just telling like uh, great stories from different communities that um, you sort of have to judge or trust a lot of your readers to kind of come along with. So I, I think there's a couple of different ways to answer that from my perspective, um, which is um, – to really sort of un understand that, um, you know, a, a, a white male journalist isn't like the be all end all <laughs> of uh, um, uh, expertise on journalism or something like that. It's kind of like a, a Hemingway fetish or something like that. And um, so I, I don't know. That's kind of speaking personally in my own like development as a as a person, just to kind of understand that um, even sometimes you're seeing story or um, being written or come through that you might have not done that way. Doesn't mean it's not the best way, you know. Um, so there's kind of a lot to that question, but I think the fundamental um, fundamental answer is that you want to be doing good journalism, and you want to um, hire people that can do uh, good, accurate journalism on all, all kinds of things. So it takes all kinds of folks to do that. There's you know, I think the reason. Okay, oh, yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> we have this discussion at SUJ quite a bit, um, and I think you know. Um, Intellectual honesty when it comes to um, reporting is critical. And I think that, you know, um, the more and to some degree, I think this is this goes without saying almost just because it's it just seems so obvious. But I, 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 I work with a lot of people who probably don't get it. Um, and uh, maybe some of us saying it don't fully get it either. But um, intellectual honesty in terms of being able to fully paint the the picture of who's impacted by environmental issues um, by or environmental challenges that we all face, um, the solutions that are being brought to the table, um, the the inequities in um, in uh, the the problems and the solutions. Painting this picture in a very intellectual, honest honest way requires as many voices as possible to fully um, report the depth and breadth. Of any of these issues, um, again, it seems obvious, but I, I'm not sure. You know, those. Have, I, I'm not sure that it is. I, when I used the word uh, "we," I meant all of us journalists. Uh, I wasn't. Oh, any rate, um, and I was talking about. I was just uh, talking with uh, someone who I had wanted to to be on this panel, but couldn't make it um, about the topic and. One of the things that, that he said to me was, you know, the reason I do this and, and the fact of, of my identity, um, my identity within what we would call this diverse community, is that I do this because I hate bullies. And I thought that in a really interesting way that that was something that cut across whether you're a, a woman uh, whether you're an old person, whether no matter what community you're coming from, that those that 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 idea that we have uh, some common goals is really valuable um, to to think about the stories that we're telling. And 
the the message that I hear uh, here in this conversation a lot is yes, we need more people who are part of the discussion, who are driving the discussion, but that really requires listening. And I think that was one of the big points of the whole concept of the white fragility, that 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 whole topic that people have been talking about lately. Do any of you want to comment on that? I know, Brian, in, in some of your comments the other day, you you raised that. Jody, you're, you're one who's, I know you've read the book and you're, you've talked about that issue. I don't know if you even want to go there, but. <laughs> I'll go there just a little bit. Okay. So Judy's talking about a book called White, Fragili White, White Fragility. Yes. Has anybody seen it, read it? Okay, good. We should probably have some of you guys <laughs> come up here and, and, and talk about your uh, thoughts on that. Um, I had picked up the book because a lot of people on my Facebook channels were recommending it to each other. And um, so I, I bought a copy, started reading it, and... Um, uh, recently, I was a panelist for the North Dakota, South Dakota um, Newspaper Association's conferences, and it was it was an all white room, and I held up that book, and I said, "You guys should all read this <laughs> read this book." <laughs> and I was telling Judy that um, uh, the moderator of of our panel, um, he's like, when I. You know, was talking about the book and about racism and prejudice and um, that sort of thing. He's like, "Well, well, I don't think anybody in here in this room is is like that." But <laughs> if you read the book, you'll understand. It, it it addresses the issue of, of really white privilege, and there's a lot of the the writer of that book covers a, a lot of different angles, but there's essentially, I, I guess if you could boil it down, is um, if you're a person, not a person of color, if you're a, a white person, that there really is a, a lot of privilege in, in your lives and you don't see it and you're, <laughs> you, I, and it's often left, to people of color to explain to you. And I'm not going to do that today, but I would suggest you read the book. <laughs> um, I've also read the book, and I make it required reading for my staff, um, mostly because not, there's no there's no one cure-all. There's no one book out there that's going to sort of suddenly make you see the world differently or, or understand things. But uh, I, I, as, I assign it to my folks because I, it helps us understand what's happening when we're having difficult conversations about race and when people start to get kind of worked up about it. You're sort of you're having a difficult conversation and um, um, uh, what happens is people start to feel morally attacked. Uh, when the truth is you're just uh, benefiting from a racist system. And if you can kind of step away from that and see that, then um, it doesn't necessarily, we can talk about race and racism without people getting um, uh, morally uh, offended and trying to defend their character immediately rather than sort of moving the conversation forward. So that's the reason that I think it's a useful um, uh, tool for, for my staff. Um, I also think that working through... Um, this is all kind of a tip sheet now, I guess. But um, um, 
nonviolent communication is also a very effective tool for sort of moving newsrooms forward in these difficult conversations. Um, and I said this uh, on a panel on Wednesday, which is that uh, the um, best way to have these kinds of conversations is to make sure that you're surrounding yourselves with a, a lot of different people and, and have friends of color and be hanging around folks of color because you can talk about things and without being... Um, feeling uncomfortable or, you know, it's sort of, it can help, um, move conversations. Um, and so it, there's sort of a, um, inside a, a newsroom environment or a news organization, uh, if you have a critical mass of people who are coming from all kinds of different, um, uh, communities uh, and viewpoints, then the conversations are not as difficult to have. And, 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 and but you still have, there's lots of uh, values in conflict in any uh, given newsroom. So you have to be able to sort of communicate your way through those as well. Um, and also, I think that just having um, strong um, kind of like basic management skills of um, boundaries and borders and um, kind of knowing the difference between assertive communication and aggressive communication, the difference between um, uh, passive aggressive communication, microaggressive communication, and then just assertive communication, being able to say um, kind of uh, what you think without sort of uh, 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 breaching someone else's um, uh, values or comfort zones. That All that stuff is like really, really important and it's it's really hard work. But again, it goes back to sort of creating priorities inside your newsroom, um, which is why they often um, recommend a book called Essentialism uh, in some of the uh, trainings that I've done, but which is sort of like figuring out for yourself in your newsroom what is essential and what are you prioritizing. And if this, this should this should be a priority, ethical journalism should be a priority at your organization. And um, if it's if it's not, then you should m work somewhere else uh, as a journalist. Um, and if it is, then you should figure out sort of how you can uh, spend essential amounts of time on these kinds of things because they're not a side issue; they're fundamental and they're just ignored. So that's kind of how we um, think about. Um, different different books that you can read or different ways that you can sort of approach this. Um, but there's certainly nothing, no one thing. And it's a, like an ongoing sort of process to be more, be more inclusive as an organization. And you also have to do all the work uh, to make, make an organization. Um, you have to build an organization that has the capacity to have these kinds of struggles without sort of melting down, which is something we kind of learned the hard way. I think I want to open it to questions now. Um, and so why don't we go ahead and start? <laughs> okay, okay, cool. <laughs> right on, okay. Um, so for the first barrel, the, the question is how do you sort of push for this kind of change from the middle? Um, and I think why, that's why I keep hammering at this ethical journalism point, because uh, you can make this, you can make an ethical journalism case pretty easily to editors. It's like, look, we're not accurately covering our community. And look at, here's the guidelines. <laughs> like, you know, there's also like do no harm or like mitigate harm. And this is a very harmful way to uh, uh, basically cover this community. So we're covering this community from like one perspective. We've got 10 people doing it from this same perspective, even though they have different beats. Um, so, and that, I don't think that that's ethical. Uh, I think we should move a little bit more toward, um, in our um, hiring processes, uh, weighting ethical journalism and uh, uh, 
cultural competencies above um, beat expertise. Uh, you can teach someone uh, how to cover any given beat, but you can never give someone the expertise that comes from living in a, a brown body. And so there's a, a skill set that's built into people that um, helps cover uh, more robust uh, and more fairly, more robustly and fairly. So you can make those arguments from any place. Um, and sort of how to, how to partner uh, without being patronizing is um, understanding that same dynamic that you lack completely lack expertise. <laughs> and so uh, you are asking someone to do uh, a favor by partnering with you to sort of bring in this. Um, so there, you shouldn't really think of it as being patronizing. You should see it as a sort of a, a teachable moment to move a conversation forward and come in there as an equal as an equal partner, knowing that you completely lack a certain amount of expertise in, in a wide range of things, and as anyone does. And so you can, um, I, I think, come in good faith. Um, it's not that, oh, hey, we want, um, we, I want to be helpful and get us a reporter of color on staff. That's, that's the wrong sort of frame. Um, it's more like, hey, we want to bring in more voices into the newsroom, and I want to help do that, and I'm going to do the work myself to do the extra work to build out the networks to find the folks who have expertise and are, and are producing the work um, that we want to see reflective of our community. Yeah. Uh, I, I can just add something to that. I... Uh, just wrote a report for the Democracy Fund about uh, the state of native media, and I focused a lot of, on independent media because that's the work that my organization is focusing on. The majority of newspapers, tri the majority of tribal newspapers and radio stations are owned by tribal governments. And so my report had looked at the independent media operations that were there. And when I say independent media, when I'm talking about tribal issues, that's media not owned, controlled, or operated, or an entity of a tribe. And so that's a very small number of people that are trying to make it work. Let's say Teton Times on Standing Rock Reservation. Uh, owned by, owned and started by Avis Little Eagle like 16, 17 years ago. And just, I, I have so much respect for her because she's kept that paper going for 16 years. And we're talking about Standing Rock, um, like many reservations, you're dealing with unemployment rates of 50% and higher. Um, and, and those numbers aren't an exagger. They're not an exaggeration. I think Blackfeet um, Reservation in Montana, they can go, you know, up to 80 percent unemployment in the in their off season. They're the right next to um, Glacier Park. And so these partnerships, that's one thing that came out in, in the report. And if you go to the Democracy Fund, you can download the Native Media re report there. But. Several people that I had interviewed had talked about this need to, I, th 
so let's go back to Avis. She's on the Standing Rock Reservation. You have a tribal college that isn't teaching journalists, so finding skilled journalists to come in and help her report. You know, she's having a hard time finding people that can come in that, you know, know um, how to do timely, truthful, accurate reporting. And some other people I interviewed are encountering that same problem. And so they're one thing that came up is, you know, if we could partner with somebody, you know, Avis could use help from, you know, Bismarck Tribune or, uh, you know, the Bismarck Tribune had their own issues when Standing Rock came up. They sent down a very inexperienced reporter down there, and she got a lot of those stories wrong right off the bat. And I'm not picking on her. She was on a panel and, and said as, as much that she was green and didn't know didn't know that story, and she kind of had to um, scramble her, her way out of that one, and I think she eventually kind of started picking up on it. But if you can partner with, you know, I would say go to the Native American Journalist Association, you know, see what their network of reporters are. You can contact my organization, the Indigenous Media Freedom Alliance, and you know, we can help you make your way into those communities because we all have a, a pretty wide network. Did you have something? Uh, one thing I, I wanted to mention is that there are a lot of really great and fascinating, again, from the outside perspectives um, or news organizations. Indian Country Today is great. I love reading them. They keep a great tally of... Uh, of uh, indig indigenous people who are running for office around the country, and he's got great stats. Um, and then uh, there's the podcast uh, Media Indigena, um, which is really cool if you if you like podcasts, if you're an audio person. So there's again a really a way to to expand your own horizons, understanding the issues. Go ahead. I'm really curious about what you would recommend for the language of a piece where the subject of the article is not about uh, an indigenous community issue or, for example, uncovering a lawsuit. About a quarter of the plaintiffs are uh, indigenous peoples. To what, you know, without calling people out for their race, like, within an article, um, but also really knowing that their values inform how they got there. What, what are some things that you recommend for the treatment of subjects when they're not in an article because they're uh, indigenous, but you know it's a value they brought? The other f folks in that story how are you dealing with their whiteness and the fact that their whiteness is bringing some values to the case? So I would just kind of interrogate that a little bit and kind of think about what you might be front-loading into that assumption that um, the indigenous folks who are part of that case are, are bringing something that you can sort of homogenize into into that question or something. I. I, I that's a tough one, but I, I think that there's maybe some uh, 
complicated stuff at the front of that <laughs> that I'm not quite sure because I don't know the details, you know. And um, I, I think that uh, some of the other panels that I was at on Wednesday in the workshop, that, you know, um, especially from the um, Latinx community, it's sort of like if you're doing a story on folks from the Latinx community and their legal status isn't a um, relevant to the story, you don't really need to be asking about that because they're just people. You know, their 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 mothers, and it's a story about schools or something. That was the example, and so there might be something to draw from from that, um, um, or you might just need to create more space to let the subjects of that story let you know whether or not some of the values that they're bringing are are important, instead of maybe assuming that there's a difference or something that could that that could help. I think it. What we kind of. As a rule of thumb, it's sort of the more that you sort of individualize any given character in a story, the harder it is to stereotype them. And so the more time you can spend with the subject of a story, giving yourself that time, again, priorities um, and prioritizing your time um, to sort of let things come out so that they're just individuals. Whatever their value systems are and however they're influencing that case, you want to kind of maybe talk to each individual about that or something if it's possible. I'm not sure. Yeah, I have just a real brief answer. In in White Fragility, the book that we were talking about, um, a lot of people want to pretend they're colorblind, like oh, mm -hmm. nobody has a race here. We do. <laughs> and you have to embrace that and accept that and don't be colorblind. Right. So the question was, um, for example, if you hire a black journalist and then you have them or have them um, tell all the stories that involve African-Americans, and how does it feel, or what can you, can you do to counter it? So it's not tokenizing to the staffer. Um, I think, um, personally, I've experienced that a lot, um, especially in this space, uh, being like the one person that everybody knows, um, which is great, because I need to make a living, but it's also exhausting, right? Um, so in that sense, like the perspective of like, it's just exhausting. Um, one, because usually if you're in this space, so I have been staff um, at a major company before, and um, I was the one person who was the photographer of color, photojournalist of color. Um, so most of the stuff came through me. Part of that was my role. So it was in, so that's important. So part of it was my role. So I knew what I was getting into. So I was being paid specifically for it. One of the things is sometimes people will be hired, but they're not being paid specifically for it. So it's not in their job description, but they're expected to do it. Um, so it can be even more problematic in that sense. If you're like, oh, you're black. So like, I'm going to have you do it, but it's not in their job description. And that happens a lot in institutions where they're predominantly white and they have the one person. As soon as something race related comes up, they're like, oh, we're going to go to them but it's not in their job description. And I know there's a lot of institutions that will also say, oh, but that's like the culture of the, of the area of, of this institution where it's like we all contribute where we can, mm. but that's not, that completely ignores like the power dynamics and historical context of the time that we're living in and all of history. And especially when it comes to like folks of color, and I'm not saying that y'all do this, but like, especially like that happens a lot, like people of color, if it's the issue that, white folks think that they can cover then and it's not in their job description but if it is in their job description i think one thing you can do is making sure that you're compensating properly and even going back to your question of um you know being in a newsroom is i think a lot of folks don't want to admit that in order for this to be inclusive and in bringing up this space is 
one, the more radical side is, does your, can your institution be recreated anew and with new voices? Because that's something that's never discussed of like, maybe we don't need to be continuing this anymore. Maybe we can bring in the community and start something anew, which I know is probably really scary. It's like, oh my God, we're gonna start this again. Um, but two, um, is also, are you giving up space and actively giving up power in that institution? So are you bringing in, are you taking a pay cut so you can bring in two journalists or three journalists? Because even having that community and that they're being paid for that specific work makes a big difference if rather than you just being the only one or not being compensated specifically for this or that language not being, you know, forthright of like, oh, you're just here and you're part of our team. So obviously we should contribute, but that's just not the world we live in. Um, hopefully that was useful. Um, yeah. That, you, you know, um, I've worked with people who were um, Latino. Right. And they wanted to cover stories about immigration. And totally. That, and we're not allowed. So it's that tension. It's a really, it seems like a problematic tension. I don't run a newsroom, but I'm just really curious. Yeah. I mean, what I think, yeah, with, yeah. I don't know if this is on. It was on. It was on. Hello. OK. I turned it off. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think, of course, there will be folks who want to tell the stories. Like, I want to tell these stories, of course. Um, I just want to be properly compensated and properly acknowledged for my time and emotional labor. Um, I think the first thing also is a lot of times people are like, oh, I'm really excited. I'm going to ask you, can I take you for coffee? And coffee doesn't pay my bills. And one, it's like, yes, I have a lived experience that can be learned, that cannot be learned. That's important to acknowledge. But there is also a lot of unpaid work that I do every single day in terms of learning not only my perspective and my history, but the perspective of others, so I know where not to step and where I can step um, and where I feel comfortable being in this space. Um, for example, like even I felt bad just in the beginning because I didn't acknowledge like my own heritage. So uh, my parents are both from El Salvador, so I'm first generation child of immigrants. Um, and then you, uh, Brian, were talking about Ed Abbey's quote around the 1980s, which is you know referencing, I don't know if you have it available, because if you wouldn't mind reading it, sure. just because specifically around that time is when my parents are immigrating, right? So I am one of those people who came over, or my parents came over, and I am the product of that. Um, and that's not that long ago, right? I'm only 29. Um, but we were, I was raised in a context of a white imagination that was predominantly, you know, oriented towards, like, white men. Um, yeah, so I don't know if you can read it, yeah, but... Yeah, sure. Um, um, so this is in context of... I, High Country News is a board of directors, and I'm trying to sort of discuss with the board of directors why we need a, uh, just a broader, um, a broader engagement with the West as a complex whole. And um, I was sort of anticipating from the board some counter arguments that I've I've heard from them before. They're very much coming out of the environmental movement, and oh, we shouldn't um, we shouldn't abandon our environmental coverage. And so my argument to the board was that, uh, sure, why not? We could, actually, because there's a lot of racism that's embedded into it. And, and so I gave this quote as an example from Ed Abbey. I think I got a book in a book um, called The Ecocentrists, which is a, kind of a good history of um, uh, the environmental movement that's a, a pretty even-handed. Uh, so he's saying um, he's giving a speech somewhere in the 1980s and saying that it might be wise for us as American citizens to consider calling a halt to the mass influx of even more millions of hungry, ignorant, unskilled and culturally, morally, genetically impoverished people, especially when these uninvited millions bring with them an alien mode of life, which, let us be honest about this, is not appealing to the majority of Americans. And so the 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 the. 
people who say like, oh, it, uh, you know, the wilderness needs no defense, only more defenders. I say that's bullshit. Alistair. Yeah, so I'm glad Brian reread that quote. He did that on Wednesday, and I wanted to talk to that because in my role in, as a communications director for Utah and FKA, Bears Ears, I'm always pitching stories, but I see a lot of that fragility and privilege in that um, atmosphere or feel. And so sometimes there's a lot of pushback, and I'm like, even with the environmental partners, mm-hmm. it's like predominantly. <laughs> It's like a lot of exhaustion. Mm-hmm. Um, but also in this capacity where I'm mediating with reporters, I see a lot of um, voices that they prefer over others, uh, particularly when it comes to archaeologically archaeologically rich um, narratives. Two mm-hmm. bears ears, for instance. Mm-hmm. There's lots of Pueblo narratives that could be replaced by that um, scientific um, source. Um, but also in this work, too, like um, while it is healing to me with my personal traumas, there's lots, and I have, this is probably a question directed to Bobby, since you cover public lands. Um, there's lots of queer voices in conservation. They're not highlighted. And I, when I meet mm-hmm. with other partners, I mean, my vibe says, oh, they're all gay, but they're not coming out. But, um, <laughs> but it's just my vibe that I just read off and pick up on because I feel like I'm true to my own nature. And a lot of, um, even the women in our, our work, our indigenous women, are not elevated enough. And so I'm, I'm in this, in my role of communications in public lands, I'm mediating between trying to get to rise those voices up mm-hmm. with the women and the queer voices, but also um, trying to decipher the, the <laughs> fascination of Edward Abbey. Mm-hmm. And that can be very conflicting sometimes. But mm-hmm. as a, and I also draw on my former reporter's um, experiences um, with the Navajo Times and how these narratives need to be highlighted, and I don't know what what coverage. I, I haven't seen anything particularly, because with Bears Ears, I saw like how the land connecting to it has helped me as a person, and I know there's lots of high violence among our women, but also the LGBT queer two-spirit voices, and they're not heard, and I, I feel the duty to pitch those kind of stories now, and unofficially, we, we I feel like we launched the queer voices of Bears Ears, um, I'm featured in another youth member, Braden Weeks, who runs UPAC, are kind of leading unofficially that effort. But even as a board, our board gave a silent cricket, like a silent yes to like engage about on like whether we should. And it could be like the politics of San Juan County that's influencing some of these, um, and the religious influences of the county is because it's polarizing right now. Could you repeat the we question? that into a question, <laughs> yeah. Alistair? Well, so I, I guess I want to know, like, being just queer, as a queer voice, happy national coming out today. Um, to, out day, like, several years ago, I did come out on this day, too, so it's a significant day for me. But I wanted to know how, if, since you're covering public lands, have you guys, any of you guys as writers, have you been, like, discovered or explored as queer voices or women, LGBTQ? Well... <clears throat> I can only speak to my own reporting, and uh, you know, I, I work for Bloomberg Environment. And we 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 are focused pretty heavily on policy, and uh, you know, a, a lot of those stories are not just just from where I sit, are just not inherent in. Those are not typical stories that we would tell for my publication, but those are stories I would want to tell as as a an LGBT person, someone who would who I would like to read that story personally, and I think it's an important story to be told. 
Um, it sort of also speaks to how we get those voices in our stories just as a matter of course. And that's something I think we're all sort of grappling with. I don't know the answer to that because I don't ask and I still don't, I'm not fully comfortable with asking, um, you know, someone's sexual orientation or, or gender identity, um, very directly in, in, you know, while, uh, contacting a source. Um, it's complicated. Um, and, uh, so I, I, again, I, it's, it's, it's something I think we're grappling with. I think that, um, it's, it's not something that I think a lot of us are comfortable with, even those of us in the community. Um, and, uh, I, I don't know exactly how to approach that, but I will say that, um, just to, just sort of as an aside note, um, as a, uh, reader of Edward Abbey over the years, I think we definitely have to, uh, come to grips with the misogyny and the, and, um, the, the, the racism that's, that's present in some of his and others works. And, uh, that's something we'll also be grappling with for quite some time. What I'd like to do is we, we kind of have to wrap up. Actually, Bobby has to lead a meeting in a couple minutes. Um, and you're all invited, by the way. We'd love Please to have, have you. Yeah. But I'll, I'll, let me just hand the microphone down the line here. Do you want to just say a couple words in, in conclusion um, about what we can take away from this, this conversation? Well, I think it's diversity. And the inclusion of more voices is uh, imperative. And I, I really think Alistair brings up a, a great point about um, the lack of queer voices in any of our stories, whether it's public lands or, or anything. And uh, something I have to work harder at, I was talking with my cousin, Charlie, who's um, transgendered and we were talking about a podcast. I haven't heard any um, native podcasters who are queer. I think it would be a great story. But, um, you know, Bobby was saying it's kind of uh, you're treading in, you know, deep water to ask people what their, um, what was the word you used? Sexual orientation, gender identity. Uh, yeah. yeah, gender I identity. I mean, unless you know, and a lot of people aren't really open about that, but uh, it, yeah, just being more co inclusive of getting other people's voices in the story. I worked for one news organization that there was kind of a checklist that you had to do for every story. Um, you know, do you got a colored person in the story? Do you have an old person in the story? I, I, it's actually not a bad thing to do mentally when you're reporting any story is to find all of those voices and don't go to the same old people over and over again. Do you want to go so you can head out if you need to? Oh, no, great. All right. Um, a couple of quick thoughts. Um, there's a quick quote um, that I'll read. Um, Photo or photography writes with light, but not everything wants to be seen. Um, I think that's a good principle in terms of journalism, too, is like not everything wants to be seen, not everything needs to be known, and not everything is ours to explore. Um, that's a good way or thing to leave off with. Um, if you're looking for queer journalists of color, I know a lot. A lot of them are my friends. Um, in terms of like, if I have told those stories, I haven't because usually if somebody approaches me, I'm just like, here's my friend um, because that's some, some, something that I don't know um, personally. Um, 
And then, um, yeah, I think a good starting point um, with any of this is just recognizing that a lot of the environmental space, the environmental movement space, journalism and media has been inherently violent to black people, indigenous people, folks of color. Like it's just in the practice and the history of it. And if you dig deep in a lot of like, either whether it's design or photography or writing, a lot of it has been weaponized at some point to exclude people or to hurt people and especially indigenous folks of color and black people. Um, so when you can really learn that history and take in into account that history, um, I know myself as someone who identifies as a man, like learning my own privilege as a man of color and being and learning like all of the different ways that patriarchal systems uphold my own status and like seeing how I can step back from that. Like that's been a lot of healing for myself and just like healing also for the person that I'm with currently right now. Um, so yeah, I would really encourage you just to learn how you are situated in this world because none of us are removed from history or its context. Um, and yeah, include our context too. Don't water down our stories. Um. I don't really feel like I represent the LGBT community. I feel like I represent myself. Um, but I think that to the extent that we might represent our respective communities, um, we represent a very, 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 very tiny number of the voices out there that um, they're important to, who are important to uh, engage with in this conversation. And I would encourage you to do so. OK, real quick. Um this kind of comes around to your, the the bullying point or something like that, or the role of journalists. Um, there's a there's a broader principle that is hierarchies of dominance that sort of speak to that and speak to a patriarchy and sort of speak to the um, white Judeo Christian tradition. So, I think if you kind of see yourselves, um, if if you want to see yourself as someone who can help kind of move the conversation forward, then really what we're talking about is dismantling a, a thousands year old system of hierarchies of dominance, which is just a lot of work. Um, but it's really like necessary, um, and I would just encourage people to kind of just do a lot of reading, uh, a lot of reading of a lot of different voices. But the the counter to Ed Abbey was uh, Murray Bookchin, who sort of brought in hierarchies of dominance, and he wrote a book called Ecologies of Freedom, which is very great, saying basically only societies that aren't free have the word freedom in them. So it's a really kind of cool book. Uh, I would start there, and I would just kind of see yourself all as, you know, we're all kind of just chipping away at a certain uh, larger system that is sort of, I think, bringing um, our... Um, uh, bringing us to a calamitous ruin. So it was just a lot of work. Well, thank you for coming. Thank you for listening, because I think that's sort of the underlying message in this entire conversation, is that we listen with an open heart and an open mind and move forward with that, use that as our power. So thank you, journalists. Uh, thank, you for, for, thank you for your applause. Take care. Thanks. Yeah.